0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time, on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. In her new book, China Inc., The Changing Face of Chinese Journalism, our guest today, Judy Pollenbaum, explores individual and societal changes in contemporary China through the personal accounts of young Chinese journalists. Neither dissidents nor paragons, but rather people working day in and day out within China's existing and evolving media, these talented and ambitious reporters open new windows to understanding Chinese journalism and intellectual life. Pollenbaum is a former newspaper reporter. She is currently professor of journalism and mass communication at the University of Iowa. Judy Pollenbaum, welcome to Weekly Signals.
1: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
0: And uh, well thanks for being with us. How is it in Iowa City today?
1: Oh, it's a beautiful day. Blue sky, no clouds, no wow. rain, no no floods, no right. nothing.
0: <laughs> Do you like uh, the university
1: there? Is it a, a Oh I love life? it. Yeah. I love it. I've been here twenty years wow. and uh, and it's now home.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah.
1: So, when was the first time
0: you uh, visited China? Was it, Were you uh, teaching there at that point?
1: Actually, my first visit was in 1975, oh. when I was still a college student. Um, I went to McGill University in Montreal, although I am from the U.S., not uh-huh. from Canada. And uh, I had a chance to go quite early um, for two months. I went with a kind of motley group of Americans, ranging in age from 18 to 60, and uh, we saw a great deal. It was uh, kind of the waning days of the Cultural Revolution, so there was a lot of revolutionary fervor, uh, things we didn't understand that later became clearer. And then I returned in 1979 to and I taught journalism um, at a graduate college for two years and then I spent a year working for China Daily which is the national English language newspaper in China Uh that had just started up so I worked there its first year.
0: Now you you interviewed uh, somebody from China Daily Mm -hmm. uh, just recently. Right. What what kind of changes did you notice at, at that paper?
1: Well, Kai is head of the um, opinion section of China Daily, and he's in charge of um, rounding up editorials and commentaries and so forth. Um, he, in some ways, is representative of a younger, very well-educated, very open-minded, modern-thinking um, Type of journalist with a lot of contacts and interactions with the outside world. He actually has a master's from Stanford University. Um, his undergraduate background is in political science, not English language. When China Daily started, it was started by a very small group of older editors who'd been educated before the Chinese Revolution. Mm. Um, who were very western-minded, but in an old-fashioned way. Many of them had gone to missionary schools and been educated in English, so they spoke and wrote English better than I do. Um, And they were joined by a small group of young, energetic um, people who were just out of college, most of them young teachers, recent graduates of English programs and so it was kind of cobbled together at the beginning and china daily has grown into a very big very professional very well respected um organization so it's Really changed a lot in the process it's probably become a little less fun to work there. Uh, <laughs> it was really fun in those early days. It's wh- now a big established bureaucracy as part of the establishment, but um, on the other hand, it's become a lot more dependable as a kind of uh, information source and window on china.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I was curious uh, did the people who you described the older um, journalist did mm-hmm. they did they ever suffer from the consequences of the purges or the cultural War Oh,
1: for sure, mm-hmm. all of them had been through a great deal, and because of their western ties, yeah. um, they were automatically suspects, so most of them had been kind of out in the countryside working as, some did manual labor, many worked as teachers, but outside of the main cities, and then gradually toward the end of the Cultural Revolution, they were coming back to the cities and being brought back into um, jobs where their English skills and their knowledge and their journalism backgrounds came in useful, but they had really been through a lot. On the other hand, they were very, very devoted to China, to building a new society, to progress, to modernization. Extraordinary people, and, and of course, that generation is dying out. There are very few of those people left.
0: Now, now some people uh, today, I guess, would would call the Chinese news or, or other papers there a uh, mouthpiece of the government. Mm-hmm is is that is that accurate to say about the the media there or is it is it much like our government as
1: it, it's a very partial uh, truth i mean there is some basis in fact for calling Chinese news media propaganda however um, you, one has to remember how vast china is, how big and complex china is, and the government does um claim to have a say over kind of policy and direction and major issues but in the media it really only can control a very small sphere of subject matter and and so that control is focused on explicitly political content, Um, the government and the the Communist Party, the ruling party, make it very clear, you know, these are our priorities today, these are our policies, this is what we want media to emphasize, and they're major policy issues and doings of political leaders and sensitive international affairs positions. And other than that, most things are fair game because there simply isn't a structure to control everything. And so there's a lot of um, independent, intrepid, enterprising reporting on social issues, environmental issues, legal issues, the economy, women's issues, health, science, medicine, um, sports, even. Um, so there's a lot of, um, there are. There's a lot of room for journalists to do real journalism, but they do have to stay away from a few very carefully defined areas.
0: Well, I was just going to say you were in China uh, during the Olympics. Just no, actually I
1: wasn't. Oh, I thought
0: you were. I'm glad I
1: I dispatched 23 University of Iowa students ah. to the uh, Olympics. They worked as international volunteers for the media operations department. Uh-huh. I was in China only for one week this summer, and that was right before the Olympics. I got flooded out of both my house and my office, and I was totally stressed out, so I found some frequent flyer miles and went to visit my uh-huh. students. <laughs> but, oh, that's nice. But no, I was mainly here watching the Olympics on TV. Well, but I did get some good first-hand reports from my students.
0: Well, what was their take on, on the censorship of the Internet during the games? Did they experience any of that?
1: Yeah, well, it really it didn't concern them that much because they weren't trying to do their own work. Uh-huh. They were trying to... Um, Help report on sports events for the Olympic News Service. Most of them, a couple of them, were helping with press conferences in the main press center, helping the international broadcast media. So they were they were quite um, focused on the day to day events at the Olympics. Uh, however, a number of them also were doing their own blogs, their own uh, dispatches, columns, and things for for their own local media. And they basically uh, relied on their eyes and ears and personal experiences and shoe-leather reporting. They didn't try to look things up on the Internet, so it really didn't come up with them. But I think they also discovered that there's an abundance of information in China and that really the concerns over censorship and filtering of the Internet were, it, it dealt with a very small aspect of the information environment.
2: Well, i'm then I'm curious what what was the uh the objective of trying to limit the internet what what was the, what information flow of information was in fact the target of this
1: of right this? well this is this is an interesting question because when the Chinese government or aspects of as some of the Chinese authorities do these things you know those of us who who want china to progress kind of knock ourselves on the forehead and say, why do they do these things? But there is um, a component of the Chinese um, government and sort of power structure that wants to limit information because it wants to control, keep controlling what people think, which, of course, is impossible. So. There is uh, a system of filtering and firewalls and so forth. On the other hand, there's also a very strong constituency within the Chinese mm-hmm. power structure for more openness of information mm-hmm. because a growing economy and a modern society depend on access to information and free flow of communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Internet also is very important for the development of, of commerce and Finance and all that stuff. So there are these um, trends working at cross purposes. There also is a very strong desire among Chinese journalists for greater information openness. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: oh, well, it's, is this a uh, inevitability in terms of uh, opening up the, uh, the information coming in and coming out of China?
1: Is I there something think in it? Inevitable in kind of technological terms mm-hmm. i don't think necessarily um, making information more available means that people will use the information right. or access the information that's most useful for for dealing with public affairs. I mean people in the United States have abundant information, we don't always use it wisely right. and we and we fixate on a lot of Trivial, sensational stuff about celebrities, and people in China are no different. Um, But I think um, the information is increasingly available, and there's no stopping it, really.
2: Right, I, I uh, there's a couple of there's one major Chinese uh, story that uh, I know has created a tremendous amount of controversy within China, and I'd be curious to hear your take on it, which is the earthquakes that occurred uh, mm-hmm. a few months ago. Yeah. In yeah. the aftermath of the buildings that collapsed and those that didn't, and the people that were affected by it, right. how have uh, how would you grade the Chinese media on uh, on their yeah. coverage and on their holding accountable the people who were responsible?
1: Well, I actually think the Chinese media did an a really good job of covering the earthquake. Um, reporters, photographers were deployed from all over the country. Can um, can
2: we take a second to recount for people who may not have, remember it or don't know know all the details? Sure. Major earthquake.
1: Uh, yeah, it was um, in June in Sichuan Province, which is China's most populous province. In in um the interior of China. It's a largely agricultural province. Um, And the earthquake displaced millions of people and is estimated to have killed 70,000 people. So it was a really, really tragic event. It followed um, just a couple months after the, the Tibet unrest, And, of course, that was a very poorly covered event because journalists were denied access, both foreign correspondents and Chinese journalists. And there was a lot of shrill rhetoric and not very much information coming out. But um, when the earthquake happened, um, I think the uh, the Chinese authorities made the decision to let the world see, you know, that... um, Sichuan needed help, and people needed to know what had happened, and they also needed to know about the efforts that were being made to rescue people. So it was the Chinese uh, media that began to uncover stories of shoddy construction um, that were related to this, this tragic collapse of schools um, all over the earthquake area and the, the deaths of um, you know, probably tens of thousands of uh, schoolchildren. And then the Western media, of course, picked up this story, but it was the Chinese media that took the lead on this. Now the government has begun to send in investigating teams, and I just read a couple of days ago that at a a news conference um, a Chinese official um, said very plainly that, yes, there were problems with construction, and we are pursuing these cases.
2: No, now weren't there buildings that didn't collapse, and then there were this a lot of these school uh, these schools that did collapse. Is there was there a distinction between the buildings that did and did not collapse? Well,
1: there were some cases of there'd be a, a an apartment building that didn't collapse, and then right next to it a school that did collapse. So clearly, it was something in the construction. But there also were a lot of You know, a lot of other buildings that collapsed, too. I mean, people's homes, apartment buildings, office buildings. Um, But clearly in some of the um, villages and, and small towns, there were schools that had they been better constructed, might not have collapsed. And part of it was related to, there was a real, I mean, in a way, it's it's a sort of sad irony, because a couple of years ago, the central government put a huge amount of new money into rural education, and some of that money went into building new schools. But local officials, you know, if they wanted to pocket some money on the side or make, deals with their friends in the construction business, you know, they 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 wouldn't pay enough attention to how the schools were constructed. So out of very good intentions came some very tragic results.
2: My, my point in bringing this up is that Chinese journalism handled it as well as
1: they, oh, yeah. yeah. Them. I think a lot of the stories that come to us from China that expose problems in our own media, the U.S. media, have taken their lead from the Chinese media. Western reporters will see reports in the Chinese media, and then they'll go and do additional investigation. But behind all that is the fact that... Um, large numbers of Chinese journalists are working very hard to uncover problems and try to find solutions and so forth. Uh,
2: we're speaking with Judy Pollenbaum and the book is China Inc., The Changing Face of Chinese Journalism.
1: Uh, you
0: mentioned Tibet uh, <laughs> right uh, during your uh, talk here on, on mm-hmm. the earthquakes. what What is uh, journalism in China doing about that situation?
1: Uh, well, you know, I think Tibet is one of those touchy, high-level political issues that journalists in China have very little latitude in covering. So there are journalists I know in Beijing who have spent long periods of time in Tibet who are really interested in the culture, who, um, although they don't, you know, they're not Tibet independence advocates, they feel that, should have autonomy and that the culture should be celebrated and that religion should be left alone and things like that. But they're not, I mean, it's one of those areas they can't really write frankly about. So in part, I think people are biding their time until maybe discussions with the Dalai Lama and his people start to get a little more sensible and some of this rhetoric dies down. But it's very difficult to have... um, to have useful public discussions about Tibet in China. In terms of kind of private discussions I have with with friends and with journalists, um, people feel that Number one, the Tibet issue is very poorly covered by the Western media that outsiders don 't understand what 's going on. But number two, the Tibet issue is very poorly covered by Chinese media and very poorly represented by the Chinese official line so it 's a much more nuanced, complicated situation so, um, so i don 't think people in China are necessarily happy with Tibet coverage either. Um, You're
0: saying that that the West doesn't understand the situation. mm -hmm. What is it that we don't understand?
1: Well, I think part of it is that um, a lot of the, the sort of news we get about Tibet is generated outside Tibet, that because there's not enough access to ordinary life in Tibet, we don't really know what Tibet is like and instead we get a reading from the Tibet exile community which is very vocal and very impassioned um, and you know based in London and Paris and New York and San Francisco and we get their side of the story I think quite thoroughly but we don't get any kind of on the ground real life feeling about Tibet, um, and then once in a while, when there's some kind of incident, like there was last spring, we get uh, this resurgence of Chinese government rhetoric on Tibet being part of China right. and the independent, the Tibet independent people wanting to split the country, and all this kind of rhetoric.
2: We, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we we had a filmmaker on a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. Makato uh, Sasa. And she has done a documentary called Fire Under the Snow about a Tibetan monk who spent 33 years in a in a prison mm-hmm. and uh, trying to get some sense of it. And, and I asked her and I didn't I don't know if I got uh, a thorough answer. And that basically was I, I asked her, why is it? What is it about the diff, what is it about Tibet and the relationship to China that it seems to have this? I. Uh, the imposition of uh, overwhelming force on Tibet, and mm-hmm. the, the, what she came over—it's it's a source of natural resources for the mm-hmm. for China. Mm-hmm. It's seen as a as sort of a a, a bank of, of natural resources for them, and they're not willing to allow anybody to interfere with that.
1: Yeah, well, that, uh, that I mean, it? that certainly is a big part of it. It's also a matter of sort of cultural and historical interpretation, and um. Okay. You know but but certainly any country that i mean Alaska is a source of natural resources for the United States, right? right. We're not going to let Alaska go off and be independent um, yeah. so it, it it of course that's a part of it okay. Um
2: well, I just was curious because we hear so many it seems to be a uh the the issue through which we see China and its mm-hmm. and its relationship to the its press. It was yeah. through, through the uh, issue of of Tibet, so I wanted to at least mention that well where would we go for an accurate
0: reading
1: oh gee <laughs> i I mean, I just think people have to read as much as they can from as many different perspectives as they can. Oh, you know okay. there are scholars Western scholars studying tibet who who, you know, give a more nuanced view of Tibetan history and Tibetan culture and the relationship between Beijing and Lhasa and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, there's no one place to go.
2: I want to ask you, you, you co-authored the book with, and I'm, uh, Zhang... Zhang Lei. Thank you. Right. Thank you for bailing me out. <laughs> And uh, what what? How did you come to uh, to know them? And, and
1: okay, well, them? Xiong Lei is a uh, is a journalist who worked for twenty five years for an English language feature service in Beijing, and she's now ostensibly retired from journalism, but she still does a lot of writing, a lot of consulting. She's very. Um, She knows a lot about science, medicine, urban planning, uh, environment. Um, So she's she's still very, very active. And we had been friends since uh, 1979. She was a student in the graduate school where I was teaching. And so we've known each other for 25 years, and we've kind of followed the developments in Chinese journalism. She from the inside, I from the outside. Um, together, and we're both in our fifties, and we both kind of turned around one day and said, "Look at all these interesting young journalists who are going to shape the field in the future. Why don't we sit down and start talking to them?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we just started having conversations with people we knew, people who were introduced through friends and colleagues, um, until we got up to twenty.
0: Oh, fantastic. Before we let you go, I have one. I have one more question. Uh, I. Just curious, your take on the Three Gorges Dam. Oh, Uh, okay. From our perspective, it looks like it could turn into an, an, well, it has in some ways with all the relocation, Mm -hmm. uh, been quite controversial, and and the end result, from our perspective, could end up being an ecological disaster. Right. Uh, How is it reported over there?
1: Well, there have been different sort of takes on it at different periods. The Three Gorges Dam actually was proposed, first proposed in the 50s, and there was a lot of opposition from hydrology experts. Um, and then when it came up again in the 80s and early 90s um, and kind of became a done deal, there was also a tremendous opposition and... Uh, a lot of reporting on potential problems in the Chinese media, and then um, at the highest levels of government, it had some very strong supporters who kind of said, "Okay, we're going to do this." However, by that time, the World Bank had made a decision not to fund any more giant hydroelectric dam projects um, because of experiences it had had in India and elsewhere, and so. The Chinese government essentially went ahead on its own with this big hydroelectric project um, and it's it is a done deal. I mean the dam has been built the ancillary dams m- most many of them have been completed, whole villages and communities have been relocated and um, you know, there may be problems down the road. There's been some reporting on problems with the reservoir and silting. Um, so journalists are keeping an eye on it. Mm-hmm. One of the stories in my book, one of the interviews is with a, a writer and photographer who spent a lot of time following these forced migrations of villages and villagers and did a lot of um, reporting and, and wrote a book that got published and um mm-hmm. So these things what's can the get of that? covered. What, what's the name of that book? Um, it's the the Three Gorges. Um, it's it's just called the Three Gorges. Okay. All,
2: right. All right. Well, yeah. well, we have unfortunately run out of time. Uh, okay. And I'm I'm sorry for that, but uh, I want to uh, thank you, Judy Palumbam. The book okay. is China Inc: uh, The Changing Face of Chinese Journalism. Thank you for being here on Weekly Six.
1: Okay. Thank you so much.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm
2: Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.